Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, as we continue our study through the book of Joshua, we find ourselves the first few verses of Joshua chapter 5 this morning. You may not be able to define it, and you may not be able to explain it. You honestly may not have ever even spent much time thinking about it, but I assure you with absolute confidence there have been times in your life in which you have felt it. For some of you, it is an overwhelming, constant feeling that weighs on you every moment of the day. It is like this massive weight that you're carrying around with you everywhere that you go. For some of you, it's more of a fleeting feeling. Some of you have learned how to navigate life with it. You've learned how to ignore it. You've learned how to bury it. But no matter what you've chosen to do with it, I assure you that feeling is there. And it is not just there. It is a a deeply rooted part of our lives. And it's just awful. The feeling was first felt in the Garden of Eden. There, Adam and Eve created by God in order to experience life as it was meant to be. That's the picture of the life as God intended it and the life that God will restore one day in heaven. It is God's people living in God's place. They're experiencing God's peace They're accomplishing God's purpose. It is life as it was meant to be. And Adam and Eve were experiencing all of that. And because they were in a perfect relationship with God, they felt fully and completely loved. They felt fully and unconditionally accepted. They felt perfectly and fully valued. They felt fully protected. That is the life that they experienced with nothing else but a full sense of the love and value and protection that came from intimacy with God. But in the moment in which Adam and Eve decide to rebel against God and walk away from the way of God, something died inside of them. Now the Lord said that surely they would die if this happened. And there was not only the entrance of physical death someday, but something in them died. Everything changed. Not just externally, but internally. And so whereas they had, for all of their life up to that point, felt fully loved and fully affirmed and valued and protected and accepted, for the very first time, those feelings changed. Adam and Eve now began to feel rejected. They begin to feel unloved. They begin to feel worthless. They begin to feel scared. They begin to feel insecure. And all of these feelings that they'd never experienced before descended on them because their relationship with God was broken. They had lost everything that comes from intimacy with the Lord. What they felt in that moment is the same thing that we feel. It's called shame. Shame. It's the reason that when God went to look for Adam and Eve, they hid. Why would they hide? Because they felt something they didn't know how to define. They were embarrassed. They felt unworthy. They felt unloved. They were feeling 
shame. Shame has been defined as a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you've done, because of something that has been done to you, or because of something that has been associated with you. Let me say that again. Shame is the deep sense, the deep feeling of being unacceptable. I'm not good. I'm not good enough. I'm not right. Because of one of three things, because of something you've done in your life, because of something that has been done to you, or because of something that is associated with you. When people think about you, they think about that thing. When you think about yourself, you think about the things that no one else sees, or you think about that which has been done to you, and when you think about that, or when you think about others thinking about you, there is this deep sense of being unacceptable. And that's, that's a result of sin. And so because of sin, this feeling of shame, of being unworthy and unloved, just resides in us. And even if no one else puts it on us, we feel it because it's the consequence of sin. But the fact is, is that other people do put it on us. Some people use this as a way to manipulate us as they continue to put shame upon us. And so while as we didn't really need it from anyone else, we've got enough on ourselves. there are others who have heaped it on us because of the things they've said or the comments that they've made or the way they treat you. And if that wasn't enough, there is the enemy, the devil who wants to continue to give you more and more shame. If you stop and think about it, you may realize that this weight that you're carrying, this emotional, this spiritual weight, might be exactly that. It's a sense of feeling unacceptable for whatever reason it may be. I want to tell you something this morning. You don't have to live with that. You don't have to live with that. That is not from the Lord. It is a consequence of sin. And because we know that it's a consequence of sin, we also know there's a remedy for it. You don't have to live with it. And that's exactly the point of Joshua chapter 5. That the Lord was taking the people of Israel through a moment in which he wanted to deal with their shame so that as they walked in to the promised land, that that's one thing they would not take with them. Now, let me give you a little reminder of what's going up until this point. So God is leading the people into the land that he has promised to Abraham. For about 500 years, they've been waiting to inherit this land. And the book of Joshua is all about land. In the first chapter, you'll see land, 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 land. And all the way throughout, you're going to get the land. You're going to take the land. God has promised you land. But let me be clear. The point is not really land. The land is a part of a bigger picture. The truth is, is that God wants his people to experience life. And life means God bringing his people into his place, a place that he had promised them, where there they might experience his peace and they might fulfill his purposes. It's what happens at the end of the book of Joshua. So the land is really symbolic of life. God is leading them miraculously into this experience of life. And all of this is a picture of our relationship with Christ. And so God brings them out of Egypt. He miraculously leads them all throughout the wilderness. He provides for them food, miraculously leads them miraculously. And then, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, God leads them over the Jordan River. In a way that only God could do, in a very spectacular event, he parted the waters 19 miles wide, allowed them to walk through on dry ground. And last week, they got to the other side of the Jordan and built a memorial, a monument to symbolize the incredible work that God had done in their life. 
And that's exactly where you pick up in verse 1 of chapter 5. It says this. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because the people of Israel. So the people are hearing that the people of Israel are coming, that God is with them. We saw this in chapter 2. And they're terrified because in order for the people to possess the land, they're going to have to take the land from those who already inhabit it. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. And so everyone has heard that God's people are on the move and God is with them because the sea has been parted and they're terrified. Now listen, if you're talking about war or strategy, this seems like a wonderful time to pounce on the nations who are terrified. Let's just be honest. They're scared. They know that the people are coming. They have a fear upon them. Everyone is talking. But if you have noticed through our journey through the book of Joshua, just at the moment in which we start to pick up momentum and just at that moment in which things seem to get really exciting, there's always a pause. I mean, through five chapters of Joshua, I feel like I'm on a road trip with someone who wants to stop at every scenic overlook. I hate that. It drives me crazy. It's just a scenic overlook. You can take a picture as we pass by and have to stop. This is what the book of Joshua does. We're getting some momentum. We're excited. We're about to take the land. Let's stop for another moment. And every chapter, there's another stop, and there's another one. In chapter 5, this seems like we're getting there, but there's another period of time in which they stop, and this one is an odd stop. In verse 2, it says, at that time when everyone is terrified, and it seems like a great time to move forward, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, I'm not going to translate what Gibeath Haraloth means. You can follow the number down to the bottom if you would like to, or look it up later. It's not really something I'd like to translate. This is a significant moment. He tells them to stop and make flint knives and circumcise an entire generation of, of men. Now listen here. We don't know how long this stop is. It, it tells us in the previous chapter, there was a, or two chapters ago, there's a three-day stop. But it doesn't tell us. But all I'm knowing is there's probably, I don't know, 700,000, 800,000 men that are present. Maybe a million men that are present. You've got to make a good number of flint knives. I've, I've personally never made a flint knife. I don't know how long it takes. I'm not even quite sure exactly what it is, but they had to make those, and then they had to make those, we won't go into any details, but then there was a lot of stuff that needed to be done, and this was going to take a while, so this is three days, this is five days, this is a week, I don't know uh, how long this was, but there's a significant stop that is happening here. God made a covenant with Abraham, listen to this, God made a covenant with Abraham, what he said to Abraham is this, Abraham, listen, I have chosen you out of all of the people of the earth, and I've decided to put my love on you and my affection upon you and my life on you and my blessing. I am going to lead you into experiencing life as it was meant to be. And out of all the peoples of the earth, God chose Abraham and said, I'm going to give you descendants that number the sand of the seashores, and all the nations are going to be blessed through you. He makes a covenant with them, and a covenant is like a relational agreement, this is how I'm going to treat you, and this is how I feel about you, and this is what I'm going to do with you. But these covenants go both ways. And so the people of Israel, Abraham's people, have to then say this, well, we agree to this covenant, and we choose to trust and follow you, and a covenant is formed. 
God is, is saying that you are my people. I chose you. I, I love you. I am putting my affection upon you. He says, when I think about you, I sing. You are my people. And in turn, the people of God say this. We, we want to be your people. We choose to trust and to follow you. And so as a sign of that covenant, God told them to circumcise the men. It was a sign of the covenant to, to set them apart. It was almost as if they have been marked for him. They say, why did God choose this sign? I don't know exactly. It, we're not given the exact reason. All we know is this. Circumcision was symbolic. It was a sign of what it is that the covenant that they had made, that they're going to be God's people and they're going to be his. And it is symbolic of something greater. You see all throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament that was supposed to point to a circumcision of the heart. It was an external sign that pointed to an internal reality that God needs to do a surgery inside, that, that the inside of your heart needs to be removed and you need to receive a new heart from the Lord that God does cut away at our lives inside and he does bring a newness of life. I think as New Testament believers, a good way to think about it is this. It's like baptism. It's, it's, it's a sign that you have identified yourself with Christ Jesus. It is also a symbol that your old life has been buried and you've been raised to walk in newness of life. So it is a sign and a symbol of the covenant relationship you have with Jesus Christ. This is what this is all about. So back to the story, there's a generation before this generation that did not choose to trust and follow the Lord. God said to them, you're my covenant people, I love you. I'm gonna lead you, I've chosen you out of all the other people and I'm gonna lead you into the promised land. But they chose not to trust and follow the Lord. And one of the symbols of their failure to trust and follow the Lord, we know from Joshua 5, that they didn't circumcise their sons. Now, I don't know if this was intentional or not. I don't think it was. I don't think this was intentionally rebelling in which they said, we don't want to be your people, so we will not do this. I think what you have is a generation of people, much like a generation we have today, who are not just conscious about the things of the Lord. They're just not thinking much about God. God is not a massive part of their lives. And so they just didn't circumcise this entire generation. They walked away from the covenant. And so look back at verse 4. It says, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt and all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness. This is the generation before this one. Until all the nation, the men of war, who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place, this generation that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So, you have a previous generation who just didn't care about the covenant. They, they didn't care about what it is that God was trying to do with them. And so where God was still saying, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people and I, I want to lavish you with my love and my blessing in my life, they said, God, we're just not interested in that. 
And as a sign of that, they did not circumcise their children. And so this moment right here is actually an incredibly significant and special moment in which a new generation is not just being obedient to circumcision. What they're saying to God is this. Listen, they're saying, God, we, unlike our parents, want to be your people. God, we love you, and, and we, we believe in you, and we trust that you alone can lead us into life. We believe you alone are the way, and so we come and give ourselves to you. And so it is that at this moment, God is asking this generation the question, do you want to be my people? To which, in response, they say, yes, we want to be our people, an entire generation circumcised, meaning that they have chosen to mark themselves with the sign that they are, in fact, God's people. This is the renewal of the covenant that is happening right here. That's why it says in verse 8, and when the circumcision of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. They obeyed. The entire generation obeyed. Now look at me here. The most amazing thing happens in verse 9. It is a statement. Look at me here for a minute. It's a statement that I've been meditating on all week. But when I first came to it and began to think about it, God stirred up all kinds of affection in my heart for you and desire for all of us to understand the significance of what happens here. It says this, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. You know what that word reproach means? Shame. It means shame. What is, what is the shame or the reproach of Egypt? Well, for 400 years, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. They were in bondage in Egypt. They were under captivity. And for 400 years, they endured the scorn and the taunts of the nations. They were ruled by their oppressors. They had no freedom. They had no life. And people would say, you say you're the people of God, but if you're the people of God, why are you enslaved? And imagine generation after generation after generation, 400 years of this, all hearing the taunts of their oppressors. They had been beat down and to which they really had no identity of, in and of themselves. And when that happens to you for a period of time, and some of you know this well, when those things are spoken into your life over and over and over, shame begins to settle in. There was all kinds of shame associated with their life. They had lost the sense of being loved and valued and protected and accepted. And you know how over and over through their journey, we see the people wanting to go back to Egypt, and we think, why in the world would they want to go back to Egypt? God is leading them to life. Do you know the reason? Is because if you have lived your whole life with shame, and someone offers you a way out of shame, oftentimes shame has become such a part of your identity, you don't know how to get out of it. That it's just kind of become who you are. You may have often heard it said it's easier to get the people out of Egypt than it is to get the Egypt out of the people. This is exactly right. The shame was such a part of their identity, they really didn't know how to come out of it. But God was trying to lead them out of it. God wants them to stop. And before they ever get into the promised land, he wants to make sure that what they don't carry in with them is that sense of being unloved and unacceptable and unclean and unpure before God. He wants them to know that the shame has been removed. This moment is kind of like a renewal of wedding vows in which uh, here are God's people and here is God. And at this moment, God says to them, and listen to this, think about this. God says to the people, hey, hey, listen, I chose you and you're mine. 
And I love you with an everlasting love. You, you cannot imagine the depth in which I love you. And you are fully accepted and you are fully affirmed. And when I think about you, I sing songs of joy, the Lord says, because you bring so much pleasure to my heart. I love you endlessly, the Lord says. To which the people respond, Lord, we are yours alone. We believe that you alone have life and blessing and we trust you. And we choose to make you our God. And God, you make us sing because we love you so much. It says at the end of verse 9, look at this. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal means to roll something away. And it just told us that God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. It was at this moment at Gilgal, in which God, by the reaffirming of their covenant, rolled away the shame that they were living with. It had been replaced with a sense of love and acceptance. And listen to this. If when they ever got into the land, that sense of shame began to come back, if they begin to think about something that made them feel unacceptable, whether it was something they'd done or something that had been done to them or something associated with them like their past and their years in slavery, if they ever came to that moment in which shame began to creep back in, all they had to do is go back to Gilgal and to remember what God said about them and remember what they said about him and remember that the covenant was renewed. You say, Pastor, that's great, but what does it have to do with us? The reason it's significant for you is because every one of you, listen to me, every one of you, whether you realize it or not, carry around the reproach of Egypt. Every one of you. I carry around the reproach of Egypt. Egypt is always a sign of our life before Christ. It, it symbolizes our life of bondage and of slavery, the time in which sin reigned in us and controlled us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And like Adam and Eve, all of us were created to be loved and accepted and protected and valued. We were all created to live with an absolute sense that I am acceptable before God and I don't have to run and I don't have to hide and I don't have to be embarrassed of anything. But instead of that, because of the sin that reigned in our life, we have a deep feeling of all the opposite. We feel unloved and rejected and worthless and scared and shame begins to take the place of the acceptance that was meant to be there. And it's not just because you're ashamed of the things you've done. It's because shame reigned in your life when sin reigned in your life. And here's what's so sad. Instead of walking around with this childlike freedom, instead of running around with this absence of feeling that someone is judging you or thinking about you, instead of having that childlike freedom, what ends up settling in is the opposite of that. We just hide in shame. And some of you this morning are hiding. It, it, it's not evident externally, but there's all kinds of things you're hiding that you don't want anyone to know. And you're carrying them around and they're weighing you down. There are some who are not here this morning. Why? Because they're so afraid that they're marked by something that has identified them and they can't seem to get free from that shame. I just had the thought this week. I, uh, our little boy, Josiah, you saw a picture of him last week, and everyone oohed and nod because he's so cute, but you don't see him all the time. And, and he, we often have to have little talks with Josiah in which we say, hey, buddy, here's what you did wrong, and here's what we need to do about it. And I've just noticed recently he's been saying something 
I'll sit him down and we'll begin to talk to him about what he did wrong. And here's what he'll say. He'll say, stop talking about it. You know what that is? That's shame in the life of a three-year-old. He doesn't know it. He can identify it. But when I bring up what he's done wrong, he wants to hide. He doesn't, he doesn't want anybody to talk. Stop talking about this. I don't like this. That's shame in the heart of a three-year-old. No one has to teach you how to be ashamed. It is a part of who we are because of the nature of sin that dwells in us. And it is a weight that you carry, but a weight that God wants to remove. God wants you to come to a moment like this in which you stop and have the shame removed. And in order to have that shame removed, listen, you don't go to Gilgal, you go to Golgotha. That's the place in which the shame is removed. You go to a hill far away where there stood an old rugged cross, an emblem of suffering and shame. The greatest emblem of suffering and shame was the cross in which hardened criminals were crucified on so that publicly everyone can see that they were condemned and guilty because of what they have done. And so in that public setting, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who had never sinned and never deserved any punishment, was publicly hung upon a tree so that at that moment he might take upon himself all of the guilt and all of the punishment of all of the sin that you committed. And do you know that at that moment on the cross, God began a new covenant? You see, in just a moment, the people are gonna celebrate Passover. Why? Because they're gonna remember through the symbols, like we're gonna do tonight, of how God saved them when they sacrificed a lamb and put it on the doorpost, and God passed over them, and they were all delivered That was the old covenant. We don't celebrate an old covenant. We celebrate a new covenant. And so tonight, we will take new symbols that do not point us back to that lamb. They will point us to the living lamb, the very son of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And that communion that we will celebrate is just like Jesus said, a new covenant in his blood. And in that moment, Jesus died in our place. He took up on himself the punishment of our sin and the weight of our shame. And he did not only die for our sins, he died for all of the consequences of our sin. He died so that all of your shame might be heaped upon him. And he might publicly be killed because of all the things you're ashamed of and his public reproach might be done so that all of your shame might be put up on him and you don't have to hide anymore. This is exactly why it says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Listen, he did not just carry your sin. He carried your griefs and your sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of that has been heaped upon Jesus Christ. And so it is that as we celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ, it is a celebration of a new covenant. 
that God is inviting you into. It is on the cross in which Jesus says to you, I love you and I've chosen you and you're mine and I have accepted you and have affection for you and he invites you in through trusting and following him into that covenant. What he says is this, do you trust me enough to believe that I can pay for your sin? Do you trust me enough that my death is sufficient so you don't have to do anything to be right with God? You just have to trust what I've already done. It's been done. Just trust it. And as an evidence of that, choose by faith to follow Jesus Christ. As you choose to trust and follow him, you enter into that covenant. Listen, and when you do, all of the sin which was credited to your account now comes credited to his account. And all of his righteousness and acceptance and love that the Father poured upon the very Son of God is now all directed towards you. And as Romans chapter 2 says, then you have a circumcised heart. You become a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away, new has come. It is at the cross in which our sin and shame was exchanged for life and blessing. It was at the cross in which God looks at you. Listen, he looks at you and says, I love you, and I've chosen you, and I've accepted you, and I've redeemed you, and I want you to myself. And we are fully known and fully loved and fully accepted because of Christ. You don't have to hide. Because Christ was publicly shamed for you. Now listen carefully. Even if we have come into this relationship with Jesus Christ, the truth is, we often want to go back to Egypt. This shame has become such a deep part of us, we don't really know what to do with it. And sometimes it just comes from us. We just have this sense. And sometimes it comes from others. You may know Christ, but you have people in your life who are constantly pointing back to those events and those things, and the shame is weighing down on you. Sometimes you may even be afraid to come in this place because of what people know about you or might think about you. And so the, ceiling, the, the feeling of shame creeps in. And then Romans 12.10 says, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, meaning that he's constantly speaking shame back into your life and telling you that you are worthless and no good and no one loves you and God doesn't accept you and he could never accept you because of the things that you have done. It just keeps coming back. I told you last week that I'd found myself a few years ago at a, a very dark place emotionally and spiritually, physically and I needed in that moment someone to help me navigate through this. I, I didn't know what to do with it. And so I began to meet with a Christian counselor. And if that bothers you or makes you worried that your pastor saw a Christian counselor, you may need to see a Christian counselor. <laughs> this is the first assignment he gave me. He said, I'll see you back in two weeks, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to just listen carefully. I want you to just listen for what he called the inner critic. What, what are the things that are playing over in your mind over and over? What, what are the things that you're saying to yourselves? What are these things? And I thought he was crazy. I thought, well, I, you know, I talked to myself. I know that in the car and other things. But I, I didn't think I had anything playing around in my mind. And for a week, I really didn't hear anything. And all of a sudden, in the second week, I began to hear something. And, and I realized that, it was happening all the time, that there was this like broken record in my mind over and over. And once I began to recognize it, I realized that multiple times throughout the, the, the day, I was saying the same thing to myself. And it, it sounds silly. I'm just going to tell you what it was. Over and over, I kept hearing, you're such an idiot. You're just, you're such an idiot. Over and over and over again. 
And I don't know where it came from or, or what caused it, but all I know is there was this, this thing that was playing in my mind, and all of us have it. All of us have memories and experience and thoughts and voices that are condemning us and making us hide. It's the reproach of Egypt. And it doesn't have to be there any longer. And so what do we do? Listen, when the shame comes back and the reproach of our past comes back or people speak into it, what do we do? We don't go to Gilgal any longer and celebrate the old covenant. We go to Golgotha every single time and celebrate the new covenant. We go back to the place where Jesus Christ died for us so that he could take it from you. And you remind yourself of Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And even if everyone around you speaks condemnation into your life, it does not exist because of Christ. He took it. You take yourself to Romans 5.1 where you are justified. You are made right and declared holy by God and you have peace with him. You take yourself to 2 Corinthians 5 and you read it over and over and over. Reminding yourself that the one who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for you so that you might become perfectly righteous. And you go to chapter 5, verse 17 of 2 Corinthians and say, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. I've been made new because of Christ. You get alone when that shame starts to settle in and you stop when no one else is there and you sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You just, you just go back to Golgotha every single time and remember that Jesus was publicly shamed so you could feel publicly accepted. There's a little lesson we've been learning from Joshua. It's this, moments matter and places matter. We talked about this last week, moments matter to God. There are, there are these defining moments in our life and there are places that mean something to us. I believe God wants to make one of those moments and one of those places this morning and right here. Some of you are walking through life carrying a bunch of garbage that you don't need to carry anymore. And why would you carry it when Jesus already died for it? He died for it. You don't have to carry it any longer. Some of you may enjoy carrying it that it's become a part of who you are and, and this victim mentality has kind of become a part of you and it's a part of your identity and you want to be viewed that way, that is demonic and ungodly and God wants you to deliver that so that you're not the one getting all the attention Jesus is. God wants to remove that weight. And this morning, we will do what we do each week. We will sing a song, we will rejoice and praise the Lord together, and we will have a moment where you can come and get here on your knees and say, Lord, just in a symbolic way, I get down before you, and I wanna take off this weight and once again leave it at the cross of Jesus Christ. I trust you enough to trust that you've taken this for me and I don't have to carry it any longer. I pray by God's grace that would happen to you this morning. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.